We all have certain experiences when a product solves a problem so thoroughly and elegantly that it lifts a weight off of our shoulders that we didn't even know was there. Dropbox did this with file storage. Slack did this with group collaboration. Zencaster does this for recording podcasts. Before I used Zencaster to record my podcasts, like most podcasters, I used a Skype plugin. There were a number of inconveniences in the podcaster workflow that you get from using Skype, and Zencaster solved all of these by creating a podcast recording tool in the browser and presenting a simple user interface. Josh Nielsen, who built Zencaster, joins the show today to talk about the challenges of building a podcasting tool in the browser and the new technologies that make it easier, such as WebRTC. We also discuss a whole lot of other things around the podcasting industry and some other things. Josh and I got along really well, obviously, because his tool is awesome and he built it for people like me. We'd love to get your feedback on Software Engineering Daily. So if you get a chance, please fill out the listener survey, which is available on softwareengineeringdaily.com survey. Also, Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. And the theme of this meetup is fraud and risk in software. We're going to have some great food, some engaging speakers, and a friendly intellectual atmosphere. You can find out more at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. Now let's get on with this episode. Josh Nielsen is the creator of Zencaster. Josh, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. So Zencaster is a way to record podcast episodes from the browser. And before I found out about Zencaster, I used Skype to record my interviews. What are the problems that come with podcasting on Skype? Well, A, Skype has been really cool for podcasters because it lets you have a guest from anywhere in the world. But the problem is when you record you know, the pre-existing tools to record Skype calls, recorded you in really great quality, but your guests sounded as if they're being recorded through Skype, which would have, you know, compression artifacts, or if your internet is having problems, you could have complete dropouts. And so it was a really big pain point for podcasters to have these remote guests or co-hosts and get really high quality audio. Now, podcasting has been around for more than a decade. Why was Skype the standard for so long, or arguably still is the standard? Well, basically because there weren't a good alternative solution. There's always been something called the double-ender. People in radio have done this for ages where instead of recording through the phone or through Skype, you record each person on both ends, which that works really well. You can record in studio quality. But the problem is if you've got a one-off guest each time, it's hard to train them as to how to do that on their end. And then you got to hassle with getting them the audio and back and forth and exporting it and sending it. So it's not that you couldn't do this. It just wasn't easy to do. And the reason why there wasn't a better solution up until now is that basically the browsers didn't have the option, the ability to record from the microphones until just you know the past couple of years. And that was the inflection point that made it possible so that now you can just send a link. It records them. They don't have to install anything. They don't have to learn anything. You hit record as the host, it records everybody locally, sends it to your Dropbox account, friction-free. Before you started working on Zencaster, you were trying to build a browser-based digital audio workstation. Why was that too hard? 
Well, I think building any kind of digital audio workstation is pretty challenging, but there's still, you know, the web audio API in the browser is still shaping up. There's still some things that you just can't do. And, you, you know, there's still... Like what? Well, for instance, there's not a way to... They're working on this. I think they're calling them audio worklets, but there's a lot of things in with audio, you need to happen really fast and you need to happen on time. And JavaScript doesn't do that very well. And so what you need to be able to do is to basically hand off that part of the processing to the native implementation on the computer to run it in native code. And right now there's not a way to build your own custom audio node that runs natively. You can build your own custom node that runs in JavaScript, but you know, there's inherent performance issues with that. And they're working on fixing that. So, Also sounds like something WebAssembly could help with. You know, there, yeah, there's, you know, there, there's a lot of cool stuff coming out. I think within, you know, the next five two years. years, two years, five, you know, depending on yeah. how things, you know, things move a little bit slowly with the web standards and stuff. But that's true. Eventually, I think, you know, you're going to have Ableton live in the browser. Because it just makes a lot more sense to have it all connected. You can much more easily collaborate and share and do all those things. So it's an exciting time, but it's a little bit early. Yeah, not to mention, oh gosh, I mean, cross-platform. I still use FL Studio, and that's a Windows-only tool. And so I have to switch to my Windows machine every time I want to work on music. But I guess we're, we're, oh, we're still a ways off from that. So you eventually started Zencaster because you were looking for a more feasible and focused project. Describe the process of transitioning off of that digital audio workstation project and starting Zencaster. I basically just kind of left it on the side. The process of actually making that decision was, I'd probably still be working on it to this day, except for I found out I was having a kid. And that totally changed the calculus in my mind as far as like how much time I had to get to a path to revenue and all this stuff. And so I started thinking, okay, how can I take what I've learned and what I'm doing and apply it to something that is maybe a bit simpler, something that has a more, you know, well-defined business model. There was a point in time as I was working on this stuff that someone had mentioned that they weren't sure about the direction I was going, but they know podcasters have a problem collaborating and sharing audio and this and that. And I had kind of just stuffed that in the back of my mind. It was more fun to me to work on this, you know, music stuff. But once I was like, okay, maybe I need to worry more about just making some money. I went back to that idea and I started interviewing some podcasters and really learning about the problem. And I realized that a, there's a really big problem here and B there's a brand new opportunity to solve it that didn't exist before. And that's a great time to get in to a problem because when the technology changes, there's a vacuum in the market. And Zencaster was literally the very first player to build something like this in the browser. Hmm. What were the problems that the podcasters you spoke to enumerated? Basically that generally it was people who had one-off guests that were the most frustrated with this because you know it was hard to teach those people how to redo the double-ended recording themselves and, and get the audio and all this and that. Also, they were coming into the... I had one guy tell me, he was like, you know, we were thinking about, basically, we want to have a guest this week, but it's going to be such a pain to, like, 
teach them how to do it. The recording with Skype quality sucks so bad. So they're like, ah, we'll just not have a guest this week. So they were not having people on their show and just doing their co-host chat just because it was, you know, they didn't have time or they didn't want to take the effort to do it. And I was like, okay, well, I think we can solve (laughs) that. Was there a browser innovation that allowed you to build this? Because you would imagine that people have looked at this problem before and said, ah, no, it's too hard, or I can't think of a right way to do it. Or what had changed around that time technologically that gave you the wind at your back? Yeah, it was basically two things. It was the web audio API, and which allows you to kind of chain and process audio through audio nodes. And then it was the WebRTC API, which allows you to access the microphone and get a live stream of audio from there. And then subsequently you can connect people in a VoIP call, like, you know, similar to what Skype does when you, when you hop on with someone in Skype. I had Ferros Abukadije on the show a while ago, and he was talking about WebRTC. That was the first time I had heard of WebRTC and he built WebTorrent, I think is the name of it. It's a torrent player in the browser so you can get any torrent link and play it in the browser like a video or a song and then you're talking about using it for Zencaster. it makes me think that WebRTC is something that's quite important can you talk more about what were the difficulties to getting WebRTC to work why did it take so long it seems like microphone and audio in the browser I mean, shouldn't this have been around since a long time ago well, yeah. So we've actually met, and I actually use one of his libraries in Zencaster. So he's he's a he's a prolific programmer, and re- very good at what he does. Simply, WebRTC stands for Web Real Time Communication, and that can mean a variety of things. It basically, instead of having like, if you want to have a, a a really snappy connection to a peer, before WebRTC was out, you had to have a socket server that would connect everybody and you know all the messages would go through your server and it would shoot them back to all the people in your session or whatever. WebRTC lets you basically introduce two peers and then let them connect directly to each other. And at that point you can and it has channels that are that can be dedicated for video, for audio and just for data as well. And so you it's kind of a lot of things going on at once like because it's going to try and to allow these video and data channels, it allows you to get access to the microphone and the camera on the computer, which was never possible before without a plug-in. So it gives you that. The first version of Zencaster did not even use any of the peer-to-peer signaling. It didn't connect you in a VoIP call or anything like that. All it did was use WebRTC to access the microphone and just recorded you, and you still were intended to use Skype or Hangouts to actually hear each other in real time. And so just that was really cool, being able to access the microphone without a plug-in. But, you know, it made sense to go ahead and use it more fully and actually do the VoIP call and remove the need for Skype at all. But as you've seen, you know, there's lots of other applications because you can basically create a peer-to-peer mesh network using this technology. And so things like WebTorrent, are possible, which is really neat. You started Zencaster in 2014. How long did it take you to build a minimum viable product? Man, it took longer than I had hoped. I mean, I think I had something that I guess you could call it a prototype. I don't know if you'd call it an MVP in within like three months of starting. So I think I 
I'm really bad with time and dates, but I think I started in, you know, March, February or Marchish, and by May I had something that I was showing like re- the really early people that I had talked to about it. The hard part was it was really it only took a f- two or three months to get something that worked in ideal circumstances. The real difficult part was getting something that worked and was reliable and under all the situations where things could go wrong, like the internet goes out or somebody's computer crashes or, you know, whatever it may be. And so I had to spend a lot of time into figuring out how do I make this redundant? How do I make it fail like a escalator, not an elevator? And in in the end, that's, that's why I have, you know, there's like several kind of fallback plans built into the system to where now at this point, like your computer could get struck by lightning and you'll still have all your audio. You'll still have all the audio backed up up to like the last thirty seconds because it's it's it. As we're talking right now, it's actually streaming the audio to your Dropbox account every thirty seconds. It is okay. Then why okay? It's streaming the MP3 and then it's storing the wave file in my browser cache or what exactly is going on with the wave? Or it's just yeah. Tell me more about that. Okay, so as we're talking. It's saving two versions of the audio. So it's it's saving the raw PCM version of the audio in 16-bit like wave format to an IndexedDB database in your browser. It's taking that and then it's taking that audio and it's transcoding it to MP3 on on the fly using an MP3 encoder, and then it's saving that to another IndexedDB database in your browser. And then every 30 seconds or so, it sends the latest piece of the MP3 to your Dropbox account so that you've always got that as a backup. And it's also just saving all this stuff into memory. And so if your memory gets wiped, you still got an IndexedDB. If your hard drive crashes, you've still got that MP3 backup on Dropbox. In a nutshell. You mentioned the fail like an escalator, not like an elevator. That's a pretty good phrase. I have not heard that before, but I understand what you're saying. If the power to the escalator turns off, you can still walk up the stairs, but that's not true with the elevator. Elevator just has a complete failure. And to me, this just seems like the entire thrust of what Zencaster is. I look at the interface and it looks like the same thing it was in 2014 or in I think 2015 is when I first started using it but I know that this is like a Dropbox it's like you look at it and you're like oh this is so simple I could build this in a weekend of course Google made the mistake of saying that they tried to copy Dropbox Google Drive is not nearly as good as Dropbox I think uh, Apple and Microsoft have done the same thing you can't copy Dropbox you probably can't copy Zencaster I mean it's not easy. It's more complicated than it looks, but you know, it's not impossible. <laughs> so it took me probably, I mean, I ran the service for free for about two years before I started charging for it just because there was so many, part of the thing was, is I, when I started building Zencaster, it actually wasn't possible to make it happen at the time it became possible as I was building it. Oh, okay. And I didn't know that. And so, at least in its current form. And so, you know, there's been a lot of, like, 
kind of going back and forth with, okay, what updates are coming and what browsers and how am I going to make this work? And, you know, big props to to the developers at Chromium and, and Mozilla. Like they've done a really great job of, you know, moving this forward, you know, in a, in a way that's, you know, keeps it stable. But, you know, there's been a few hiccups here and there, but so I've actually kind of had to really keep an eye on things and, and that's been a, a big part of the, you know, why it took a while is I was kind of waiting for the, the browser ecosystem to mature as I was building it. I could have started charging probably sooner than I did, but honestly, I was a little bit comfortable, more comfortable in a beta because there's less pressure when things went wrong. I could just be like, ah, beta. For know. sure. <laughs> for sure. I like things went wrong for me occasionally. And cause I was using it in beta and I was like, well, I have no right to complain. <laughs> I never yeah. lost anything because I do client-side backups, and it did like scare me a little bit. But once you switched off the beta after going for so long, I was like, okay, it's probably in a state where I can trust it at this point. Yeah, yeah, that that was that was a bit, that was pretty important to me because you know it's a service that if it fails, it's a big deal because. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you, you're never going to have that same conversation again. And so something's been lost. If something gets lost, it's it's lost for good. And that's, you know, that's a lot of pressure. How long would it take you to write it? If you were writing it from scratch today, how long would it take you? Well, I was thinking about this today because funnily enough, a lot of open source projects have have kind of risen to the surface around this type of thing. If I had probably waited six months to start, building it i probably could have shaved six months off of my time that it took me to build it because i had built a lot of stuff myself that nowadays you can just go grab a library that does it for you but i now i understand a lot of the inner working bits better so it's it's probably probably better off for it man if i was to rebuild it now you know i'm i'm not a very productive person to be honest it takes me a while to tinker around and get things done but Mm. i would say I mean, this is funny because this is what I originally thought it would take me is three months to build it. <laughs> and that was not, that was way off. So I don't know. Well, you think I, three months at this point. I think so. Knowing now that I know, you know, now that I know all the stuff that I know, probably maybe three, four and a half, something like that. Well, what's the, what's the most time consuming stuff along the last mile? Is it like browser compatibility with Safari on windows or something? The stuff that I've been working on recently, I actually recently hired like a JavaScript performance expert to come in and like audit the whole recording pipeline. And because we're still having problems with like if someone comes on like Windows 7 and that generally tends to mean they've got an older and slower computer. Oh, there, yeah. There can be issues where like they're drop missing samples and things like that just because it can't keep up. So. I mean, there's still stuff to work on. I definitely wouldn't want to start over now, but that's actually going live this weekend is a, a huge performance update. So That's great. Wait, so is that why... So there's occasional times where where I do a recording with with the guest, and I think that this is correlated with the guest being on Windows or perhaps Linux, where the MP3 is fine, but the WAV file will be like, a 15 second audio clip repeated over and over and over again. And it's like, what kind of corruption happened there? Yeah, that was, <laughs> that's what this, this update is addressing. What happens there is. And by the way, for listeners who are skeptical of Zencaster, after I say that, that's like the only egregious bug that I've encountered that I can recall. And it's not even egregious. Cause you get an MP3. 
Yeah, the MP3 backup isn't affected by that, but the wave recordings can be. What happens is the in-memory copy of the wave is fine, but the version that's getting saved IndexedDB was having some... On slower computers, it was having issues where, because it wasn't executing fast enough, some of the buffers were getting overwritten in chunks by... I don't want to get too technically into it, but it was a misunderstanding that it was, it was a, I made some air, I made some bad choices on how I was gathering this audio and then merging it together to, cause you have to kind of collect these chunks and then until you have a big enough chunk to save it. And then inside of there, some stuff was getting overwritten, but now we figured so out exactly some, why. There was some performance bounding on worse computers that prevented the buffering process from working as well as it did when you were testing it. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and it only it only manifests itself if your wave upload originally failed, and you had to rely on that index DB backup to retry the upload. So it didn't happen very often, but yeah, when it did, it was a big bummer because yeah, your wave file is basically unusable. And so that it took me for I couldn't figure out why it was happening, and I just I got on Hacker News a while ago. Someone was talking about JavaScript performance, and I was like, hey, if any of you guys want some contract, <laughs> contract work. I need some help. Yeah, I found a really great guy that knocked it out in like less than a week. He's like, "Yep, here's your problem. Let me get it fixed for you." So it was great. Oh, so just you're just con. You've hired somebody as a contractor full time. No, are you like giving them equity or anything? No, no. This was just a temporary contract for hire kind of a thing. Okay. Yeah, All right. I, I can't. I can't afford them full time. <laughs> ah, right. Okay. So you release it as a beta product and. What happened in between the beta release and the production release? Like, were you just, was it fixing small things and shoring up small errors, or was there any major shifts that you made? You know, it wasn't a lot of major things. The, the I guess WebRTC print, is in that timeline. Yeah, well, yeah, I added I added the ability for, you You know, I, I completed the loop where you could do the calls. A lot of it was evolutionary rather than revolution. The, the main core idea behind the app stayed the same, and the architecture did. It was just dotting the T's or dotting the I's and crossing the T's and adding more functionality and features, you know, that people were asking for. Nothing crazy changed, but it took me so long to go from beta to being paid in part because... There was just a lot of little, you know, writing an app is like is like writing a novel. You know, there is, you have to make so many little decisions to get to the end point. But also at this point in time, I was my life was really busy. I'd gotten married. I'd had a kid. I moved, would lived in Australia, New Zealand, and Thailand. We were traveling, you know. So, and I didn't have any funding for this, and so I was working. I was doing contract work part time the whole time through this until maybe just three months before I launched. And so, you know, I, did, I, I didn't have, I was still working over 40 hours a week on Zencaster, but I would have been working, you know, 60 or 80 if I hadn't had the other job. Hmm. So the way Zencaster works today, I open up an account, I connect it to my Dropbox, I make a new interview, I send a link to that interview to my guest, and then we have an hour-long conversation so you mentioned some stuff around the streaming and the index DB, and is there anything else interesting going on in the back end during that process, or like what are some of the failover things that are going on, like while that setup is occurring and while that hour long conversation is proceeding? What are some things that might occur maybe during 
times of network blips or yeah i mean i, I kind of kind of covered like the fallback plan of of to the right into the memory and then to the database and then to dropbox I'm trying to think of like what other interesting bits are going on but as well as that i mean so the WebRTC connections are a bit more fragile than, say, your like socket connection to the server. So, I actually don't use, I don't make heavy use of like the data channels in WebRTC to send stuff because you, I could do the chat and all the other messaging through that. So you still have a WebSocket connection that handles like sending the the record event to everybody and the mute and raising your hand and the chat and all that stuff, you know. In theory, it's it's you know architecturally not too complicated to be honest. Hmm. Interesting. So, what are the bugs that you know that still exist? Are there are there anything, or do you feel like you're just in the mode now where you can just expand feature wise? No, there's still some some I would say some pretty high priority issues right now. One of the problems that we're having is VoIP. Like, if someone gets disconnected from the VoIP call because their internet connection drops out or something. You know, occasionally people can get stuck into like this loop where they keep trying to reconnect. And I think the reconnection signals are getting out of sync and it never reconnects successfully. And unless they like refresh the page, that's one that we're kind of dedicating this week heavily to getting that resolved. Man, last week we had a bunch of issues with like the post production service, which I guess that's something I haven't brought up yet. You know, Zencaster just records all the tracks and separately, but then. After that, you can opt to have them mixed together and have the audio conditioned and you know make it sound nice in one final track for you to publish with. I use a third-party service for that called Auphonic. Partially... I've used Auphonic. Good service. Okay. Yeah, they're really good. I've written like FFmpeg audio stuff in the past, and I was tempted to do that with Zencaster as well, but Auphonic has done a really good job of adding a bunch of kind of like AI-powered audio enhancements to your track that would have probably taken me a lot of time if I could have even accomplished it to to do. So one of the things a lot of people really like about Zencaster is how good the post-production stuff sounds, and that's basically because I pay someone else to do it <laughs> who's focused solely on that piece. But I had a bunch of issues with, like, Dropbox. Because I'm using, I'm not, I'm, because I'm using each person, each host's Dropbox account, you can run into a lot of issues where like I've uploaded the audio to the Dropbox account, but then they like move it or they reconnect to a different Dropbox account by accident. And then the audio is inaccessible from me when I'm trying to run the post-production. I'm actually in the process of moving away from using Dropbox as like the canonical store of the audio. Really? Yeah. Because it's caused too many problems like that. And Dropbox doesn't have any meaningful response to support requests. (laughs) Are you switching to S3? I'm actually going to start using Google Cloud Storage. Ah, so the Google equivalent of S3. Yeah. I actually did sign up for S3 and I was going to use it, but because Dropbox is just a wrapper around S3 anyway, but <laughs> right. they made it kind of difficult to do what I need, which is upload files in a streaming manner that have an unknown length ahead of time. There's no mm. easy there's no easy way to do that with AWS or with S3. Fascinating. Yeah, you have to like start using their Lambda service and like copying the chunks over and then Oh, what a disaster. Them, putting them together your own at the end and whereas at Google, Google you can just stream it. 
Yeah, Google has this thing where you can basically just say, I don't know how big this file is, but I'm just going to keep sending you chunks, and then when I'm That's done, awesome. put it together. So in theory, I haven't actually done it yet, but it looks like I can do that. So that's that's the direction we're heading. Is that like the big architectural thing on the map? Because that was one thing I was going to ask about. I was like, why do you use Dropbox? Like, I mean, I understand why you would use it for the MVP, mm-hmm. but like once you scale it to where you have a bunch of people, like maybe you should put an S3, but like, yeah, obviously Google Cloud Storage makes more sense if you can stream it to that. But is that the big architectural thing that you're focused on right now or the big feature that you're focused on? Yeah, that's definitely one of the big upcoming things because one of the pain points for podcasters, aside from just getting the recording stuff done, is, okay, what do I do with my audio now? If you're not a seasoned podcaster, there's still this Byzantine process involved of like, getting your audio hosted and the RSS feeds and getting it onto iTunes and all this stuff. So I'd like to be able to help with that as well, which I can't really do with Mm. the audio being on all these different Dropbox accounts. And I'm also trying to offer like network services for podcasting networks. And so I need more control over the audio and I'll be able to offer more and better services once I do that. And so, yeah, that's something I'd like to get done. Like this. Interesting. So, so what does a roadmap look like for that? So if you get people recording in Zencaster, the audio is getting streamed to the Google storage, which is just basically like S3. You've got the files hosted now. And then what do you do? What's the next thing on the product roadmap? After we move our storage solution, you know, I'm still trying to decide a little bit. There's a lot, there's so many different directions that it could go. There's a lot of, because the podcasting ecosystem is, there's tons of businesses around it and trying to figure out. And because I have people at the very beginning, it's easy for me to just add follow on services that as needed. And, you know, people seem to prefer to not have to use all different kinds of services if they, if they don't have to. So, you know, there's opportunities, I think. So like, to, what are the, well, like what, what services do you think are the most onerous extra? Cause I mean, I'm familiar with, I'm very familiar with some of these external services that are annoying to use. What are the ones that seem the most annoying to you? Well, I don't know if this is one of the pain points that I think a lot of podcasters have is they can't get deals with advertisers because they're not big enough. And a survey that I sent out a while back, I asked one of the questions I asked is, do you advertise and do you want to? And said they don't advertise and 60% said they do want to. And so that sounds like a pretty big gap of, of, you know, what people want versus what they're getting. So I think there's maybe some opportunity to help out there, but you know, that's, I'm still weighing that out because it's a totally different type of business than what I'm in right now. And I don't want to lose too much of my identity there. Mm. I think there's a lot of opportunities to make more interesting, you know, It'd be cool if you could have an audience in your Zencaster recording. And people are already doing that, but it doesn't work that well if you get too many people in the show and they have to like... I was talking about like the Twitch, the Twitch approach. Yeah, kind of. I did a podcast yesterday with a guy who he has like premium subscribers to his podcast. And one of the benefits they get is he invites them to the Zencaster session so they can listen live while Hmm. the recording is happening. But... And one of his major requests for me is, can you make it so that people are muted right when they join? Because as it is right now, when someone joins, they get, it starts recording them and you can hear them in the thing. So, you know, obviously that, that sounds like, you know, it'd be an interesting avenue to try and do something. Well, it sounds like, like such a, such a better adjacency because 
if you go in the direction of the dynamic ads or the small podcaster that needs advertisements, that is such a different area than the audio recording segment and there's all these entrenched players there's all these complexities of negotiating the relationships with advertisers it sounds like a mess yeah it is the only reason why i have a draw towards that is basically it doesn't sound fun to build so much but you know the biggest growth in the podcasting space is not in the podcasting creators although that is growing quite well it's in the Mm. listeners and so being able to monetize the listener side of the podcasting is, you know, there's financial benefits to that. But I'm not, I'm going to try and not get too lost in the weeds on that and make sure I get a really good solid recording platform and, and build more features and stuff around that before I go in that direction, if I do. So this is an interesting question from the point of view. So you're a, quote, indie hacker. I mean, I read your indie hackers interview. It was pretty interesting. And I think one of the interesting challenges that an indie hacker, I mean, it's not really a challenge, but it's a, well, it's a challenge that an indie hacker has is how do you maintain focus? Because especially once you get a cash cow like Zencaster that makes enough money to, I mean, I assume it makes enough money to sustain you. You've got this project that you're excited about, you're passionate about it. And so the question is like, how do you maintain focus and how do you police yourself? So what, I'm sure like having a kid helps with that in some sense, but how do you divide your, I mean, because the podcasting space is, like you said, so, there's so many opportunities there's so many directions you could go. So how do you focus and do you like spend your weekends drawing up designs or while you spend your weekdays just focusing on the bread and butter product? Or how, how do you assess that from a workflow perspective? I don't know that I have a great answer for you. I do sometimes just let myself wander and see where I end up for better or worse. I think maybe the most grounding thing in my day to day is like, my emails, customer support emails and feature requests. I try and make a conscious effort whenever I'm thinking about something to say to myself, are people asking you for this or not? Because it's so easy to think, oh, this could be cool. And what if I did this? And But at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff I come up with is really not something that people are asking for. One of the things that I do get a lot of people asking for that I'm actually trying to hire some help with right now, wink, wink nod if you're out there (laughs) is uh an ios app for zencaster oh because there's a lot of times that people are either aren't going to be at a computer or they're too busy or they just don't don't have a computer or whatever or they just want you know the ultimate mobility and so actually i get a lot of people not so much asking if i if i have a mobile app but they ask if people can call in via phone and be recorded yes And which is going to sound horrible if I actually did specifically that. But I think the better solution would be to make a mobile app so that someone could get on their iPhone or whatever and then log in from there and then do the recording. Now, would that that just be a web view? Because, I mean, I've had people – I've had somebody who has done the episode by opening up the browser on their phone – and opening up Zencaster in the browser, and it was okay. I mean, it came out okay. I think we had the wave issue that I referred to earlier, probably because of the memory constraints of the phone. 
but if you're solving that with the Windows 7 fix that we mentioned earlier, then what do you need? A, would the iOS app just be like a nice web view? No, I'd go native with it. And, and here's why. Even on the desktop, you run into problems with storage space for the backups. The browsers, and justifiably so, limit you to only giving you a quota of about 10% of the existing free hard drive space on the computer, which generally is okay because people generally now have pretty big hard drives and I show warnings if they're getting low, but people don't have that much space on their phones. And so while I might be able to, especially with these performance updates, get it to work well in a web view on a mobile device under ideal circumstances, you'd have a lot of issues in times where like if things went wrong, they didn't have room to save the backups and there's no way for me to really get around that well in the browsers right now. So just for reliability's sake and performance and everything, you know, I, I'm going to do a native app. Speaking of iOS, what do you think of the fact that Apple controls so much of the podcasting space, but they do not have much reason to lean into it because they are the most profitable company in the world? <laughs> you know, it does seem like they've upped their interest a bit in the podcasting space since it's kind of gotten its recent revival, but I think they're, you know... I wouldn't be surprised if if you see some big acquisitions from Apple at some point. But yeah, I don't know. It's I'm not, you know, I'm not a businessman. I don't understand this type of stuff. Whatever have, I don't know. Who, who knows what what they'll do if they do anything. Speculate. Who I mean, who would they acquire? Well, it just seems really weird to me that they're basically just sitting on they've just sat on their podcast directory for like what, since oh, 2005 or something it's been like 10 years and not much has changed you know maybe it would be something that they integrate maybe they'd want to i don't know maybe they'd buy somebody like Acast or somebody who has a really big podcast you know distribution platform and roll it into their itunes somehow and integrate things better because right now it's quite archaic the way podcasts work you know you have to download the files and the analytics are crappy around it and all this stuff. You don't know if anybody actually listened. You just know that they download, but those get on like auto play. They like auto download. So I think ideally you'd be moving more towards like a streaming type of situation and where you'd be getting good analytics going back and forth about how long did someone listen to this and you know, what, where are they at when they listen to it and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think there's a lot of value in that and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, because they're already like basically in control of this ecosystem, I wouldn't be surprised if just because they don't want to let go of it, they decide to double down. Right. So what you're referring to is the fact that if somebody listens to my podcast episode, it is opaque to me whether they have streamed through the first 15 minutes of it or they have downloaded the entire episode. So the analytics don't show if they have listened to, for example, the third ad in the show. Now, I've done surveys that show that people listen to most of the most of the entire show, or most at times they listen to the entire show, but the questionnaire is obviously biased towards the power listeners. Those are the ones that are even responding to the questionnaire. 
So you don't have good analytics on who is listening to what ads, so you have no idea how to price the ads. So we have this weird inflation when it comes to pre-roll ads, except people can skip the pre-roll ads, except we don't have analytics on who is skipping the pre-roll ads for the same reasons we mentioned earlier. So it is kind of a disaster, and something like Acast does try to fix that. You know, I've had Acast on the show. I've talked to Acast. I consider them friends. Caitlin at Acast is a friend. And I I think I've told this to them. Like, it sounds like you're trying to boil the ocean with what you're trying to do with Acast. And you're trying to handle – you're basically trying to dominate the entire iTunes ecosystem. Or you're trying to make a new iTunes. You know, are you biting off more than you can chew? And I guess we'll see. Yeah, I think I think if Apple ever decides that they want – to maintain control over over the podcast ecosystem that they probably would have to make some acquisitions like that because people are now working around it and making their own distribution platforms and that are better and do you know better for the podcaster better for the listener one of the things that drives me crazy i I always have to get on my wife's phone and go in and delete all of her podcasts because it totally fills up her oh my uh, god i've had to do this twice in the last two months yeah, she subscribes to all these ones. She doesn't even listen to half of them anymore, but she's still subscribed. They fill up all the space on her phone, and she goes to try to take a picture when my kid's doing something cute, and it tells her no space, you know. So just you, you that never regard, have to do that on Netflix. Right, exactly. Just in that regard, there needs to be some change, and it, I think it would be in Apple's best interest to make sure that just so that people enjoy using their devices, that they they help change the way that that all happens. But what's so absurd is that you know, what you're focused on with Zencaster is so rare in this ecosystem, the tools for the podcaster. Like, what does the podcaster want? It seems like the big companies don't even really care. But ironically, the lack of focus on the creator, and it's led to this weird broken ecosystem where stuff is not indexed well, discovery sucks. But it makes it so that it's like this indie sort of thing where it's not like the long tail, right? It's not like, oh, there's the fat head and the long tail. It's just like the really long head or, or I don't I don't even know what it would look like because you have a ver- total variety of, of listenership amounts. Like, I don't think that it's like if you took one of the charts, I mean, somebody could easily prove me wrong on this. Actually, they couldn't because we don't have good analytics. I don't think it would be a power law distribution of listens. I think it would be like a linear thing where anyway i should focus my question what tools do the podcasters need well i think they need they certainly need good recording tools and that's that's what i'm attacking but like we kind of already discussed is the analytics tools i think another thing is the the advertising stuff i think a lot more people would like to have relationships where they're podcasters are such a great source of like highly targeted audiences like the they're the audience (laughs) yeah but since they're so niche a lot of them are so small that the advertisers don't want to take the time and effort to deal with such small players individually you know i think there's an opportunity to kind of and and I think you know Acast has kind of done this with their with with their dynamic ad insertion and stuff with with their platform. The problem is Acast is very much like if you want to use our tools, you have to be completely inside of our ecosystem and embrace it completely. And there's a lot of people that might already have you know relationships with their own advertisers and or, or don't want to you know for whatever reason. Such as myself. Want, 
Right. So it wouldn't make sense for you to go run your show on them and, and That's let exactly them just right. run. Yeah. So I think there's opportunities that my, there. That was, that was my issue with Acast. I was like, uh, who wants this? I mean, I, I guess maybe if you're a brand new podcaster and you have an audience and you, you're just starting to get ads, then you're okay onboarding with them and moving everything to their infrastructure. It's just like, I don't, I think it's it's like a perfect example of not talking to the customer, right? You look at Acast and you're like, cool, you built this because this is the vision of podcasting that it works for you. This is not something mm-hmm. that works for the podcasters. Right. And one of my overarching kind of principles with Zencaster is I do want to add more follow on services for podcasters to use just out of convenience, but I don't want to wall people in because I know for a fact that there's a lot of people that use Zencaster because it doesn't do too much. A lot of the seasoned podcasters, they already have a host. They've already got advertisers. They've already got a whole workflow with their own audio editor that they love. They don't want all that stuff again. They just want really high quality recordings and then go do all that other stuff. On the other hand, you've got the brand new podcaster who doesn't know what any of that stuff is and would be quite happy to just have you hold their hand through the entire process. So trying to find a good solution to where you're able to hold the hand of the people that want it, but let the other people just use you for what you do really well and then move on. That's my goal. Okay, so the different areas of the advertising that you could fit yourself into. So right now you've got like the beginning of the podcasting workflow already in Zencaster, right? You can record your podcast, you can add an intro, you can add a little music, you can put Auphonic filtering and, and perfection on it. So the next place you could go is you could say, okay, here's the timestamp where you insert an ad, and then you could have a way to dynamically replace that in the future. And and then you also you also could get into the space where you're brokering relationships with advertisers somehow. So what would be the ideal sequencing? So if you, assuming you were going to move into that space, what would be the ideal sequencing? Matching up advertisers? No, like in terms of your business. So if you wanted to move into that space where you're adding in the ads, you're facilitating dynamic insertion for the users and you're somehow brokering relationships with the advertisers themselves what would be the way that you would sequence that business-wise and have you thought about like the interface into that world yeah i've put a little bit of thought into it again i haven't even decided if i want to go in that direction one of the one of the nice things about zencaster is because i have kind of a small niche market like there's only maybe one or two hundred thousand active podcasts in the world that i don't get competition from like big funded players with tens of millions of dollars and so because one of my you know the reason why i built this company was to be financially independent geographically independent and and also like independent in the decision making process I don't want to have to raise money and have a board and have all this other stuff. Businesses can really take on a life of their own and run away with themselves. You have to really aim them properly to get what you want out of it. And so those are some of the considerations around that. If I was going to do it, something that I've envisioned is maybe like a way for like, maybe I would send out a, maybe whenever you went to your dashboard, I would have a pop-up that says, Hey, you're in a, desirable niche for advertisers would you be interested 
And if you click yes, then I add you to a directory that I give access to ad fulfillers, ad fulfillment agencies to log into and let them browse through all the different. And I would, I would kind of bundle these up into like topic niches, like topic verticals basically. And then I could say, Hey, we've got 1.2 million downloads a month in Mm. this, this vertical. And you know, it's where Mm. they're not seeing individual shows. They're seeing a vertical that have ads and each one of these is like a targeted type, you know, this is a group of this targeted audience. So if I'm Squarespace and I want to advertise to burgeoning entrepreneurs, I can log in and I can say, okay, I'll choose the vertical burgeoning entrepreneurs. I want to get a hundred thousand pre-rolls across burgeoning entrepreneurs. And then Zencaster fulfills that order by inserting those ads onto podcasts that use Zencaster. Yeah, but I one of the things that I think is really important for like advertising and podcasting is like the the human like the read in by the host, you know, more impromptu. Most people don't want to be for podcast advertising to be like the radio where it's a break to the sponsors. They want to hear what do you as the host, the person who I'm developing a relationship with by listening to your show, what do you recommend? You know, what are you endorsing personally? And so what I would kind of want to do is make it so that the advertiser could give some outline instructions of what needs to be said and what needs to be covered, but then still have them all be like organic read-ins by the host. And so Mm. when they select this vertical, they give me the instructions. I send that out to all the hosts and then the hosts would then do their own read-ins and then insert that into the, into the show. I think that's what I would like to see. And I think that's what would be cool for podcasters and for listeners, because I feel like that's one of the big, what's one of the really cool things about podcasting is you, you don't feel like you're being advertised to. You feel like your host is giving you a a great tip on what service you should use. And if you're just doing a break to a sponsor with a pre-recorded ad, you lose that. Mm. I think. How do you think about pricing? You know, it's hard. You nobody's ever going to be happy. You're always going to have people telling you you're charging too little or too much. My pricing strategy came from some of the first interviews I did with podcasters when I was asking them, "Okay, here's the problem. Here's what I think the solution could be. How much would you pay per month?" The first guy who gave me a number was said twenty bucks a month, and I just stuck with it for better or worse. So it's- <laughs> It's not like related to the costs or anything. It's just like, I mean, because I pay $20 a month. I'm absolutely happy for it. I'm like, I'm totally content to pay $20 a month to have Zencaster running my business. I mean, By the way, I would probably pay $80 a month for it. <laughs> see, there, see, there's the there's the thing. I think, obviously, you need to cover your costs. That's a no-brainer. And then you need to be reactive. You need to, you know, you need to think about how much this is worth to, because you don't want to, base your pricing on just your cost you want to base your pricing on how much how much value you're bringing if you've done like contract web development and stuff then that's kind of one of the principles that you kind of try to stick with i don't know i think i am going to start to try and offer more higher value services but so i can charge more for people who have you know more needs but i like the idea of making it something that's affordable for even the hobbyist yeah. 
I don't I don't want to force them out. And that's why I have a really great liberal free plan that, you know, most people that use Zencaster don't pay for it, but I've structured those free plans in a way where they don't cost me hardly anything. And so I can do that. And so, yeah, I'll play around with pricing, but I'd like, what I'd like to do instead of just raising my prices is adding better services and raising prices for those like add on services, basically. Um, Right. So that, like ad- advertising related stuff. Yeah, yeah. If I could start doing that, there's 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 value in that. And also the advertising stuff could help me monetize some of the people that aren't paying. That's one of the reasons why I, I have the free plan is I think that I'm definitely I think I'm gonna be able to find ways to monetize those users later and I don't want to drive them away now. Right. That makes sense. Okay, so we're running up against time. I wouldn't ask just a one thing. One or two things about music, because you know, you said you were working on this digital audio workstation. You probably thought about this space. I've done a couple shows with, like, I you know, I did a show called GitHub for Musicians about a company called the name is escaping me right now. But one of the things I find super strange about the internet right now is like you can collaborate on almost anything, and yet most of the music that we have on the radio is still like one to five people that have created it together. And you look at a piece of software, and software is so much harder to create than music. I mean, I would argue it's harder to create than music. You know, like Linux. Like, what piece of music can rival the complexity of Linux? But if there were some tool where you could have mass collaboration on a piece of music, then I think it would be totally game-changing. Do you think we're going to get that anytime in the future? Well... So the company that I was working on before Zencaster was Robot Audio, which was the DAW, the DAW in the browser. Before that was a company called Soundkeep. Our unofficial tagline was like GitHub for music. That was our elevator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I've spent a lot of time in this, thinking about this and, and exploring it. And man, it's a the, totally... the potential is so tremendous. Is it though? Here's why. Here's why I have reservations about that. One is programmers are able to make enough money with their code to not have to worry about, they're not like musicians don't make money. They're all hoping that they get this, you know, this one in a million breakthrough, even excellent musicians don't make money. It's like the lucky ones that get, you know, it's just so rare that you actually break through to even being able to make a living with it, much less, becoming rich and so they're so protective of anything they've touched that they're not like they don't want to share <laughs> they want like anything they have like this is mine this is copyrighted this is you know i'm speaking in general terms obviously there's outliers in the, around here and especially programmers who are musicians i think see this differently because it would be amazing for you know, especially electronic musicians, because it's such a derivative art form, you can't sell your music that you make if it samples other audio because of the license. You know, there's so many licensing restrictions around it. So our idea was to try and make like a massive repository of of like totally open source music assets that you could then remix and make what you want out of it without having to worry about licensing issues. The problem on top of that as well is most of these guys don't want to just sample any old song or any old thing. They want to sample the hot 
tune that's on the radio. So there's a lot of dynamics in it that make it not work as well as it might seem like it could work when you think of it just from like a programmer's perspective, like GitHub. Another thing about it is music is so subjective. Programs are, does it do what it needs to do or not? Obviously there's some design. If it has a UI, there's design and stuff that can, can be subjective. But a lot of it is like this works or it doesn't. The works has design and does what it needs to do or it doesn't. With music, what I what we found when we built Soundkeep is that a lot of people were annoyed that someone else was messing with their music or they might want to collaborate with someone else, but they were very selective about who that might be. And they had to have a very good stylistic kind of match with someone to even consider wanting to work with them. So those are some of the problems with that idea, not saying it's insurpassable. And there have been some, uh, some companies that have since then, started to make some things like that work but splice splice i think is is one that came around after after Soundkeep, and then there's a few of them out there but i think a lot of them have gone down the route of like doing is it blend I, i've forgotten now blend.io that's the one that i interviewed okay yeah a lot of them have gone down the road of like offering like sample packs from right like big yeah you know which is cool but it's not that github for music yeah. idea yeah. <laughs> that's right I think is Splice or, or, or one of them has an interesting thing where if you pay for their subscription, they basically let you like rent to own yes. soft, soft synths, which is cool. It's a totally different idea than what originally, but I think that's the thing is to monetize that space is challenging. You have to find some interesting other ways to do it. And even having, even doing that is tough because like someone can literally go on a BitTorrent and download a 10 gigabyte pack of samples that's how many samples that is and it's how free that is you know so anyway it's a tough space but it's fun it's interesting i wish i went to an s when i was still working on Soundkeep. i went to the sf music tech summit and this is when i, I started. went to that did you okay oh, Which, i actually i actually went i went this year it was it was super fun super interesting Oh, okay. I, it, this was maybe in 2012 or 11, I think. Yeah, really great crowd, really fun and interesting. But this is when I started to realize maybe I needed to think about a different business to get into. Because <laughs> wait, oh, wait, okay, Un- unpack that, please. Because <laughs> I think well, I know what you meant, but please unpack that. Well, the very first, like the opening keynote of this event was basically... The guy, I've forgotten his name, but the guy who runs the summit got up there and he was basically saying, and what, uh, to, to preface this, the biggest sponsor of this event is BitTorrent, or at least it was the year I was there. Their banners were everywhere. And, oh, wow. Um, I didn't I know, know that. What's his name? I've forgotten his name. I met him there, but the guy who invented BitTorrent was there running around. And so basically the keynote of this event was the guy, was the, the guy who runs the event getting up there and saying, how do we make money? Does anybody have any ideas? <laughs> and I was like, uh, <laughs> this is not good. So, well, here's the set. Okay. So we're totally going over here and uh, like totally <laughs> going into a random topic, but I'll just say like my two cents on this. As much as I liked the conference, it was almost like this. 
like the coal miners of you know middle america who are like bring back our coal jobs and they're just it's just like a bunch of musicians that are pining for various versions of the past and some of them who are looking forward to the future and thinking of ways to form fit old technologies to slightly new workflows but i sensed in general a lack of understanding for the potential of technology people were basically like hey look i built a new synthesizer drum pad or like hey i built a drumstick where you could put a sensor on it and if you put on headphones you can hear the drum playing in your ears it's like okay that's kind of cool but where is the like harnessing the power of the internet and network effects and so on like i don't know it's just i honestly came away a little disappointed I think it was similar when I was there. There, there was a lot of. Lament. It felt antiquated. I was like, "Are we seriously? This is what music technology is." Yeah, there was a lot of people lamenting the the demise of the. the house it was a pity world. party. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people distressed about the. You know, how are we gonna? You know, what are we gonna do next year? Things are just getting worse, and not a lot of. The the one thing that I did see that I thought was nice is I saw a few talks about. People saying, you know, the people that were the most distressed, I think, were the middlemen because they're the ones. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> they're the ones that are totally out of a job because yep. now the way for a musician to make it is to connect more directly with your audience and be completely, you know, share, be open, do live streaming, do live <laughs> concerts. Right. And the, the, you know, the, the distributors were not interested in that idea, really. So. Yeah, but I was just when I went, what I saw was a cash-starved market, and that's not a great way to make money, really. I felt like the biggest star at the event, and this is so strange, was DistroKid. You know what DistroKid is, right? Yeah, yeah, he was there. He was there when the Pug, right? The Pug. yes, P- Pud. yes, Pud, Pud. Pud. So this guy, oh my god, I want to have this guy on my show. I forgot his name, but you should look up Pud. PUD on Twitter, and he's made all these different products. He's this guy who's made a bunch of different products. I think he made Tiny Letter, which sold to MailChimp. He made a bunch of other stuff, and then he made this thing, DistroKid, which is basically like anybody can put their music on Spotify and iTunes and Amazon and all these different things with one click. And it's kind of similar to Zencaster in the sense that it's like $20 a year, and you just never unsubscribe because if you're a musician, you know, you put out one album a year or a couple albums a year, and it's like when you put it out, you might as well throw it on Spotify if it only costs you $20 a year to do that. But it's, it's funny because, like, that is our innovation. It's like distribution. Like that is he was the star of the show and he was distribution. What about the music creation? Where is the music creation, the collaboration? Like why is that anyway, I that's totally not the focus of this episode. I we should totally wrap up. Well <laughs> I think that there is opportunity for cool stuff to happen. Like the reason why I got into doing soundkeeping the GitHub for music was me and some friends did the node knockout. 2011 i think and we made basically a collaborative beat it's a hackathon yeah it's a hackathon for node.js and javascript basically and we won the hackathon with this thing called 8-bit beats and what it was is you could have up to like eight people join this room and each one of them got basically a midi roll that was like eight beats long or eight measures long and 
each one of them got a different thing. Like one person got the drums, one person got a different synth melody and some other things. And it was really cool. We, what we were watching was people making music online together. Obviously it wasn't like, you know, fully fleshed out songs or anything, but it was just this ever evolving beat that people would come in and add things. And sometimes someone would come in and just draw like a penis in the MIDI roll and it didn't sound very good, but often (laughs) it actually like came together and there's this really crazy, like amorphous beat that was evolving. And we're like, wow, this is really cool. It's obviously fun for people to use and, you know, maybe we can do something here, but man, it was really hard to take that idea and move it into something that, was truly valuable enough to pay for and not just like a fun novelty thing, you know, but that's the thing. Music is kind of just a fun, not like the thing is, is like someone told me this a long time ago and I, and I think it's true. He said the business model behind music is that you can get laid after the show. And like, I think in a lot of senses, that's true. Like people are going to make music for free just for all the fringe benefits. It's not like something that has to be monetized. It has to be a business. Like it's just fun. Like I, I, and it's an aspirational art. Like everybody, yeah. Imagines themselves up on stage playing to a huge, you know, theater or whatever. But like when I go out and I buy a guitar, or a synthesizer, like it's, it's a hobby. It's fun. It's not like a business investment and trying to put too much money around it. Maybe just kind of ruins. But it's it, not you know? okay, but it's not even about money. So I remember, I think I was, I must've been like 10 or 11 years old when, you know, postal service, right? The band postal service. Okay. So postal service came out with their first album. And I remember seeing on MTV, it was like Kurt Loder, or, you know, one of these old MTV anchors and they're talking about like how postal service made their first album and it was like oh yeah we sent each other tracks over email and we just sent it back and forth until we got a good album and like at the time that was like revolutionary and here we are in 2017 and that is still the best that we can do in terms of collaboration except instead of sending email it's like you share over dropbox it's like what has gone wrong where that is the best standard of innovation that we have in the music space? Well, but here's the thing. There are collaborative DAWs out there. Let's see. I can't even remember what it's called, but there's one. Well, Ableton is. Splice is. In a way, yeah, Ableton is. Ohm Studio is one that's been around for a while that really focused. That's like their key feature is like you can do stuff really collaboratively with other people. But the thing is, is people are so entrenched and attached like learning the ins and outs of a DAW with all the plugins that go with it is like a very personal thing and it takes a lot of time and it's people don't want to move even if you're slightly better than the other one it's a hard transition for people to make and you know there's these big entrenched players that you have to be really excellent even if you offer some cool collaboration features to get people to move away from it. And so I think what's more likely to happen is that you're going to see, well, Bitwig is, I think one of the more promising players on the market. They're doing a lot of new cool stuff. And I think maybe eventually they'll, they, they've been able to like get a lot of the Ableton crowd to switch over to them. And I think maybe they'll be the ones that kind of take it but further into the future. This, with this, the is the th- this is the thing I, I don't even understand, which is that, well, okay, so Blend tried to solve this problem by just making it so that the standard is 
you export all your stuff to WAV files or MP3 files or whatever, and like that's an obvious layer of interoperability, but nobody wanted to do it. And I think this, I mean, this is like, okay, sure, like there's such a burden of the workflow. If you want to collaborate with somebody in a different digital audio workstation, okay, you have to export everything to different WAV files. What a headache to manage. It would be so much easier if you just collaborate with somebody who's using the same digital audio workstation as you, but... Anyway, I think we've we've sort of covered this topic like it's there's a cultural problem as epitomized by the digital what is it the music future music of the future summit or whatever it's called I I love that summit tech music summit I'm I'm gonna have that guy on the show I really want to talk to him again but you've got the cultural problem you've got the technical problem of these different walled garden digital audio workstations which are basically like you might as well be talking about Windows versus Mac versus Linux in terms of walled garden and interoperability. And that is enough to partition people such that we have a completely stagnant music industry, as far as I'm concerned. When I look out and I listen to the music that is out there, I'm like, okay, this is completely stagnant because you don't have the collaboration that we have in these other industries. Uh, I don't know that I agree. I don't know that I I don't know that I I don't know that I disagree either. I mean, I think you're definitely right in some regards, but I think the really cool thing now that's happening in the music space is, and perhaps this is in part, you know, PUD is helping with this, is that it's a lot easier for people to get. I don't know that the the big problem was so much the collaboration problem. I mean, that's an interesting problem, and I hope that there's progress made there. I think the big problem is people who are making their music couldn't be heard as easily or get, now, paid. Or get paid. Now that's becoming easier. And yeah. I think that's cool. And but oh, yeah, there's, a hero. there's never been a golden era of music where being a good musician meant you were going to make money. Right. So it's not like we've really lost that. That was never the case, but now people through SoundCloud and through Spotify, I find bands all the time on Spotify now that like nobody listens to, at least according to their, their listen counter that I'm like, wow, these guys are great. I'm so glad that I'm be able to find them and hmm. hopefully they'll, you know? So I think that there's been big improvements in that area, but the problem with the clap, like when I was working on SoundKeep, I was in Boulder, Colorado and I was working for TechStars, which is a tech accelerator there. And I went to one of the partners of the fund behind Techstars Foundry Partners is my good name is Jason Mendelson I think. Yeah. He he has a band there in town and they do shows and like everybody from the tech scene comes and so he was kind of the one that I looked to for advice on, you know, this is what we're working on, do you think this is cool and what, you know. And he wasn't having any of it. And here's why. And he he brought up a really good point. He's like, "Look, this is the complete, but this is also the type of a musician that he is. He's not an electronic musician, but I still get the why he said this. He's like, this is the complete antithesis of what I'm looking for when I'm making music. He's like, I want to be with my friends in the studio, jamming together. I want oh my the God. live interaction. That's you so know. retrograde. It is, but it isn't. I mean, I love that too. I can't deny that that's more fun than looking at a screen and but that, collaborating that's, with somebody. That's, that is the equivalent of saying, okay, we all need to work in the office together. Yeah, I mean, but still, if you could have your buddy there, like, you riff, I think it's much easier to riff off of each other. No, but it, but here's the thing is that it's actually not, because if you're, 
like that's the experience. So if you're talking about people who are working with, okay, yeah, we are siloed into roles. I play guitar, you play drums, you play saxophone, you play piano. We've all got our partition of roles. That's fine. But if you've got people that grew up working in digital audio workstations like me, I need to control my workflow and my instrument is the computer keyboard. And that is not a two-person instrument. So if I'm going to collaborate with somebody else who is a full-on digital musician, there's not room for two people in the studio. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. I can see both sides of it, I suppose. Me too, me too. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, what's this podcast about? (laughs) Yes, thank you for attending Music Engineering and Debate and Strong Opinions Radio. Or, uh, yeah, okay. We'll call it quits, Josh. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for producing a tool that has become a backbone of my workflow. And thanks for <laughs> for staying on for so long. <laughs> Usually this only goes 60 no, minutes, no. but okay. Anyway, I'm going to stop this Encaster recording now. <laughs>